Welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. Thank you, Pastor Bethany, and I appreciate those words, those very kind words. And um, yeah, you know, when I came here, I thought, here's an opportunity for me to help what's going on here. And um, I don't know. That's just what it was. It was the Holy Spirit. It was the leading of the guiding of the Holy Spirit. How many people were here for Ken Fish? Yeah? Okay. Did they record that? Did they record Ken Fish? Well, if they didn't, that's too bad. But you got to, I would listen to that. He gave a great word on being blown by the Holy Spirit. And uh, that the, the wind of the Holy Spirit blows us to and fro. And uh, not to confuse that with being blown about by every wind of doctrine. That's different. But we want to be, uh, we want to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us. And so uh, I would say that, that as an adult, at least, that's, um, well, certainly even as a child, I didn't decide to be born. I was blown into the womb, you know, blown out, trust me. And uh, no, I'm kidding. That's a bad mental image. We're going to stop there. The idea here is that I was thinking Ace Ventura. That's what I was thinking. Okay, there we go. So the idea here is um, (laughs) most of my adult life has simply been being blown by the Holy Spirit. And so I don't tell God what I want to do. You know, a lot of us are focused on our five-year plan and things like that. And that's wonderful. Um, although that's, that's a, an idea that the world gives you. That's not in scripture. Five-year plans are not in scripture. Um, so the pressure there should really come from the, the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And if your five-year plan is something that the Holy Spirit gave you, then awesome. That's wonderful. Do it. But what I say is, let the Holy Spirit be your guide, you know? Let your conscience be your guide. No, let the Holy Spirit be your guide, and let the Holy Spirit form your conscience. Anyway, that's just my little thing. I love King's Church, and I've loved being here and helping out and putting my shoulder into things and and uh, serving uh, Pastor David's vision, and it's been wonderful. So thank God for a church like this. This is an, an oasis in a desert. Is everybody thankful for King's Church? Yeah. Okay, so let's, uh, we're just going to finish up chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Revelation chapter 5. And the guy who's doing Pro Presenter, I apologize. It's just going to be verses 10 to, or sorry, 11 to 14 that you can put up there. Um, So... We're just going to be finishing up uh, these verses here, and there's not really much to uh, to work with in terms of the content. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna you know we're gonna do some some fun stuff with it. But uh, starting in verse 11, it says, "Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels." numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So here we see the closing of the vision that uh, is a vision of the throne of God. So if you've been following along with our Revelation series, uh, we're now in chapter 5 at this moment, uh, hitting verses 11 to 14, but we've already covered the uh, chapter 4, which is a vision of the throne room of God, and chapter 5, which is a vision, again, of the throne room of God. But each one of these visions gets deeper and more focused in, in its uh, content. And so the first, cha- uh, cha- the first vision, chapter 4, is a vision of the transcendent uh, essence of God, that he is divine. It's a vision of divinity. It's a vision of eternity. It's a vision of the ancient of days. Uh, and, and so in that sense, it's not a focused vision. It's, it's the kind of vision that we would expect John to have uh, that I think really is reasonable to understand that God is God, that he exists, that he is all-powerful and all-knowing, all and, and his uh, glory is magnificent. And this is something that I think that the, even the, the secular world can understand in terms of secular world, as in the pagan world understood God as this unmoved mover, this first cause, this, the, 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 the source of all life. But then we understand um, in this passage in, in uh, chapter 5 that the vision switches to a focused view of who that God is. That that God is Father and that God is Son and that God is Holy Spirit and that the, the Son is actually a lamb slain and that lamb that was slain is actually slain for a purpose and that purpose is to redeem us. And so now the song that they sing is not simply a song of, about the divinity and, and transcendence of God. It's also a song about the imminence and redemption of God. Now they're singing a song to the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so this points to the fact that the lamb is God. That, that the lamb is co-equal with the father. This would be blasphemy to worship the lamb. If, if Jesus wasn't God, then why is he receiving praise? Why is he receiving honor? Why is he receiving glory and blessing? And why is he compared to him who sits on the throne? To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And so they're both worthy of power. And power is named here uh, because it points to the energy of God, uh, the grace of God, the the ability that God has uh, 
in his all-powerful nature, his comprehensive ability to uh, have dominion over all things by creating all things. And then secondly, it points to riches, which is the whole wealth of the universe, both physical and moral, which is due to him. And then it's, it's saying that he's also worthy of wisdom in, in the sense that he, all, all, of the, the, all of his understanding is perfect, perfect knowledge. And then he, he's worthy of strength, which is the quality that enables someone to do what they will. And then honor, which implies uh, every single mark of public distinction uh, and, and, and prestige, every single uh, uh, status God is worthy of, and glory, which is his moral display, his holiness on display, and then uh, blessing, which is this character of happiness that is ascribed to God, this complete tranquility and joy that is a part of his nature. And so these, these things are, are really the ultimates in uh, our existence, and all of these things God is worthy of. But that's what I kind of want to talk about uh, the nature of uh, worship. Worship um, is, a, is a word that is connected to the word worth. Worth is the root word of the word worship. That when we worship God, we see him as worth something. And so here in this picture, God is worth riches and wisdom and power and glory and blessedness. He's worth those things. But worship as it pertains to our lives is what I really want to talk about um, because I think that this picture is a good backdrop to use uh, kind of as a contrast to some of the things um, that we um, think about worship and the ideas that we have about worship. And so what I want to do is give you three points on worship. All right? Is that simple enough? Some people complain that, you know, I'm too, uh, I have too many points, you know, the porcupine preacher here. And um, I like to look at myself as the cactus preacher because I'm prickly, you know, and, and um, you know, I don't like being, I don't like people coming up to me after service and talking to me, so, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But there's water inside, there's water, there's holy water inside, I don't know, I don't know, okay. I don't mind being alone, you know, having my own opinion, cactus preacher, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with it, I'm going to try to work it, I'm going to finesse it. But, okay, so three points on worship. Number one, worship is giving praise to God. Mind blown, right? Mind blown, right? You, you, weren't, you weren't prepared for that. I know you weren't prepared for that. Um, worship is giving praise to God. Psalm chapter 19, verse 14 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation 
of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. I've touched on this before, uh, the last time I actually spoke on chapter four, which you can find on the King's Church podcast. Um, But really briefly, the the point I'm trying to make here is that um, the words that we ascribe to the Lord matter. Look at that scripture. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord. I don't want to offer words to God that are unacceptable to God. So what does, what does that look like? What does that look like? What does my praise look like? It looks like words that are rooted in truth, not in wishful thinking, not in projection, not in what we want God to be, but what he is to us. And how do we know those things? Well, his word. He's told us what he is through the special revelation of his word. So if we're looking for the right words to praise God with, we need to turn to the words that he's given us, which are found in his word. The scripture gives us the full revelation of God. We need to be focused on sound doctrine when we're speaking to the Lord, when we're praising the Lord. And in our worship, um, sometimes, uh, (laughs) how do I put this? Well, the last 25 years in evangelical Christianity, Pentecostal Christianity, we've seen the rise of a particular type of church movement that was rooted in worship. I should say this first definition of worship, which is praise. And uh, they sang songs from the hills of Australia. (laughs) Now, here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. I love so many of those songs. In fact, I've put a a playlist together that I can give you afterward uh, of like 15 of my top favorite Hillsong songs. Um, So I'm not smashing Hillsong. Uh, But at the same time, I am, okay? No, I'm kidding. No, what what I'm saying is this. There are lessons to be learned. And the lessons aren't simply things that you found out from a Discovery Channel documentary. The, the lessons to be learned are to, are to understand that music is powerful. Music is powerful because music is art. And art is influential to us because art is connected to a transcendent quality of being called beauty. And so when beauty is, it hits us, it hits us through the senses. We understand beauty through the senses. And so God has actually designed that, that we are hit by beauty through the senses. But music is art and art is powerful because art is the manifestation in our realm 
the natural realm of beauty, which is a tr- in, in the transcendent supernatural realm, which comes from God himself. God is the ultimate beauty and the ultimate source of beauty, as Dante found out. But the point is simply that there is an order to things. Order matters. You ever walk up to a machine, you put the quarter in, and you get, you know, the gumball's supposed to come out, and it doesn't come out? <laughs> it doesn't come out because something's out of order. You put the quarter in, nothing, you turn the thing, nothing comes out, and you're shaking the machine like a madman, you know? I used to punch the machine, break it, get all the gumballs, you know? It would No, I'm kidding, that never happened. I was never strong enough to break the glass. And uh, it was a test of manhood that I failed time and time again. Thanks, Dad. But the idea here is, you know, that's why I'm in New York, because I hate my parents. But um, we're all in that, you know, we're all in that boat together. So, (laughs) okay, so the idea here is that there's an order to worship music. Check this out. There's an order to worship music. Here's the order. Here's the order. Worship first, then music. The order to worship music is worship comes first and then the music. Notice what's happening in the book of Revelation here. They're singing a song, right? Do you hear anything? No. You you read the words first. You read the substance first. And then the music is something that comes afterwards. The song to be communicated is made substantially of words, of truth. And the beauty is something that is a garnish to that truth. Do you see? That's the that's the connection. But when we lead with beauty in the sense that we put beauty as the emphasis and as the main thing and, and we, we, we put truth in the back seat and we let beauty drive, it turns into something ugly. Because beauty is deceptive. That's the problem. Guys know this. Well, most should. Not all. But, but this is part, part of the problem with men, right? Men are just like, oh, she's beautiful. And they don't realize that she's ugly inside, right? Not all of them are ugly inside. <laughs> Only in New York are all of them ugly inside. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Like 95% of them are ugly inside. But the idea here is... <laughs> See, I'm not ruthless. Am I not merciful? (laughs) The idea here is that beauty can never lead. Truth needs to lead beauty. And then and then we use we use uh, uh, beauty is 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 wrapping that song in in something that's attractive, right? So beauty is a part of the process. It's like marriage, you know, the man leads the woman. (laughs) 
the beast leads beauty. The idea here is that um, the devil changes the order. Look at what happened in the 60s and 70s. Amazing music comes out of the 60s and 70s. I love the Beatles. I love the Stones. Well, the Stones are not as good as the Beatles, really. But Stones wrote some good music, right? I love uh, Steely Dan and Fleetwood Mac. And, you know, I love all of the music. Stevie Wonder. I mean, are you kidding me? Marvin Gaye. Uh, I love the Beach Boys. But these guys were all doing drugs. <laughs> these guys were all blown out of their brains and leading a generation astray through beauty. You see, I'm attracted to the music because it's beautiful. But it's false. It's rooted in a false philosophy of life. And it's rooted in a false religion, a false emphasis and false worship. Not all of it now. Not all of it. But we, do you understand what I'm saying here? It's not just about beauty. It's about truth. What are we saying about God? Many times people will remember the songs more than they'll remember the sermons. I do. When I'm, you know, feeling down or whatever, I don't remember sermons. Many times I just remember songs. I'll remember songs by like Keith Green, you know. Like waking up in the longest dream, how real it seemed until your love broke through. Like, oh yeah, that gets me, that gets me, oh yeah, you know. I killed it hard to believe someone like you care for me, you put this love in my heart. So if you don't know Keith Green, you're, un you're an uneducated swine. Um, which is forgivable, which is forgivable. Jesus cleanses us of all unrighteousness. But Keith Green, his, his, the thing that causes him to be an enduring artist is he merged beauty and truth. And, and that's why he's good. You see, goodness, beauty, and truth, these are transcendentals. But when you mix beauty and truth in the right way with the right order, it becomes good. And that's why 40 years later, after, you know, he died at the age of 27, he, he, his, his music is still sung because it's beauty and truth together. So worship is giving praise to God, but it's giving praise to God in the right way. And we need to get that right. And the artists in the room need to get that right. I'm not just speaking simply to the layman. Uh, or I'm not simply speaking to the, the people that are not artists. I'm speaking to the people here that are going to be writing songs for King's Church. When you write songs for King's Church, write with truth first, and then beauty. And that way, you will lead them to righteousness. You'll lead them to the throne room of God. Okay. Number two, worship, worship is more than a song. Didn't that blow your mind? Point number two, 
I'm telling you, we're going deep. We're going really deep tonight. Worship is more than a song. You know, you were made to worship. You were made to worship. You are a worshiper. It's who you are. It's actually your identity. The reason why, because as I said, we're defining worship as worth, something that we give worth to. Worship is simply something that you give worth to in an ultimate way. That's worship. And there's a thousand things that you could do that with. And there's a thousand things that people do that with. We are natural born worshipers because we are natural born lovers. You love things. And you worship those things. You see worth in those things. And so the def- the part of, of, of this idea of worship is connected to sacrifice. And so if you're trying to find the thing in your life that you're worshiping, let me suggest, follow your sacrifices. What are you sacrificing for? Well, you know, I, uh, I got I to gotta get that 16 hours in on my job because I'm working my way up the corporate ladder. And, and so I can't make, I'm sorry, family, I can't make Thanksgiving. And I, I, can't, I can't be home for my kids. And I, I can't be home for my wife because, you know, I'm really, really slaving. No, no, no. You're sacrificing your family on the altar of money. Therefore, you're worshiping money. Yeah. Now, if you reverse that, you sacrifice money on the altar of family, you're worshiping family. So in that sense, worship happens in every aspect of life according to our sacrifices. The key is that worship of God has to be the ultimate form of worship, that we sacrifice everything for the Lord. We sacrifice everything for him. But the false God of worship many times is identity in what we do. New York is full of this, right? What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? Oh, what do you do for work? Yeah, I work at Wall Street or I'm, I'm a, you know, a barista at Starbucks. No, <laughs> I, you know, what do you do? That's the thing in New York, doing, right? We do here. We do. We get things done. Well, That can be an idol in your life. I love what Tim Keller says about uh, idolatry. He says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. What is idolatry? It's when we turn a good thing into a God thing. And you can do that with anything. 
If I just have this, I'll be happy. If I just have this, I'll, my identity will be complete. <laughs> you know, that's, that's exactly what the world does. That is exactly what they're doing. They're chasing after things that motivate them, thinking that when they have those things, they'll be happy. They'll be in a state of beatitude, in a state of blessedness. And let me tell you, not one of those things brings happiness to those people. Not one of them. Because if it did, they'd stop. <laughs> they'd just chill out. You know, hey, I got my Oscar. I don't need to do this anymore. No, they want another one. <laughs> hey, I got my picture taken on the front of a magazine. I'm good. Everybody knows who I am. I'm good. No, you want more. Because it doesn't satisfy. It's in, there's an insatiable desire. It's a God-shaped hole. And let me say this, the greatest problem in your life and in mine will be idolatry. Do you know how I know that? I made it up. That's how I know that. Just like most of the stuff I'm telling you, I just make it up. I'm a genius. That's what geniuses do. They make stuff up. People think they're right. I know that because the Bible tells me so. Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 6 to 7, says, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not have any strange gods before me. That's the first commandment from God to mankind, to his people, Israel, the people that he set aside to be holy. The first commandment, this is the most important thing that he could say to them. I am the Lord your God, don't have any other gods before me. What he's doing is he's helping them understand what their problem is going to be in life, which is, you're going to want to have other gods before me. That's going to be your problem. You're going to put things, you're going to find other things in your life because your heart is intrinsically sick, sinful through original sin and your heart is going to go in different directions. And God's saying, no, listen, the main, you know, when you're a murderer, the main problem isn't murder, actually. The main problem is idolatry. Because to become a murderer, you had to place that sin above my will for you, which was not to do it. Every single one of the following commands goes through the commandment against idolatry. God is saying the main problem in your life is going to be idolatry. Worshipping something else other than him. And so true worship, true worship is more than a song. It's more than the words that we speak. True worship is lifestyle. True worship is what you do Monday to Saturday. True worship isn't simply the substance of worship, I should say. It's giving praise to God, but it's also, in a substantial sense, what we do Monday to Saturday. True worship is concentrated in a word. You know what that word is? It sucks. I'll tell you what it is. Obedience. <laughs> True worship is when we are obedient to the Lord. It sucks. It sucks. But let me tell you this. 
Obedience to the Lord is the way out of sin. If you're looking for a way out, I don't know how to get out. I don't know how to get out. Obedience. When you're obedient to the Lord, he makes a way out. He provides a way out. Obedience to the Lord recognizing, recognizes that there's a conflict of wills. And that your will is, a, is in crosshairs with God's will. It's in collision with God's will. Self-will is in collision with his will. And obedience says, no, I'm going to choose to obey the Lord. Worship in this sense. It says obedience in, in the Old Testament. We read this when we were going through the life of David. Samuel said this to Saul, King Saul, who refused to obey God and was, was forever cursed. He said this. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Do you know why? Because obedience is sacrifice. You see, when you obey, you place yourself upon the altar. And when you place yourself upon the altar, the fire of God falls. And your life becomes a blaze of light for Christ. And what we have are people who don't want to obey and therefore they don't want to be sacrificed. You see, worship isn't necessarily what you do, it's who you are. Worship is your identity in Christ. Romans chapter 12 verses 1 to 3 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This verse is so key if you want life transformation. If you're dealing with secret sins or, or things, as I said, you can't get out of, even, even addictions of, of sorts, this verse, this verse, worship will save your life. When you begin to worship the Lord, what did Israel do? They worshiped, the God, they worshiped God and the walls of Jericho fell down. They couldn't get through the walls with warfare, so they had to turn to worship. Worship will destroy the strongholds in your life. You're going to a therapist and God's saying, why don't you just go to my word? Why don't you just go to my will? You, you would rather... You would rather obey the will of a therapist than obey the will of a holy God in his word. What's up with that? The will of the Lord and the word of the Lord are one. We go to his word to understand his will. And we, when we obey his will, we're walking in the spirit. We're walking and being led in the spirit and we're led out of darkness and into light, into true freedom. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm telling you, this, this verse is huge. This is the conclusion. This verse is the conclusion of Paul's, all of Paul's writing from Romans 1 
to Romans 11. The conclusion is found in this verse right here. Therefore, as I've said, everything I've said, present yourself as a living sacrifice to the Lord. You want peace of mind? You want the righteousness of God? You want the joy of Jesus? Present yourself as a sacrifice. You want the fire of the Holy Spirit in your life? You want that fervent passion, that ardor, that flame of zeal, of love? Present your body on the altar as a sacrifice of worship. God will send the fire. Fire, I love what Leonard Ravenhill says about this. He says, fire doesn't fall on altars. It falls on sacrifice. And the greatest altar of sacrifice is the cross of Christ. Jesus presented himself as a living sacrifice. True worship is complete surrender to God's will, offering ourselves as a slain lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Your life should be the life of a slain lamb. You want power, you want authority, you want blessing, you want the riches in Christ Jesus, you want the honor of being a part of the ch a child of God. All of these blessings can be yours by participation, but you have to become a slain lamb. Many of us <laughs> were always lions and never lambs. We always were, and, and what, we, what we fight against is the will of God. No, Lord, I'm not going to Madagascar. I don't even know where that is. It's a good movie, though. Number three, really quickly. Number three, really quick. I'm going to end in the next five minutes. Worship is about God. Worship is about God. Worship is not about me. Worship is not about the poetry of me. The poetry of me. I'm all about the poetry of me being my true, authentic self. I mean, this is the mantra, right? This is like they scrawl this on the sidewalks in New York City. This is like, this is the tattoo on the body of, the New, of New York City. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's all about self-love. Fall in love with yourself. Ugh. You know, yeah, exactly. And we're creating a society of masturbators because we're all, we're, we're having sex with ourselves too. You know, it's gross. It's gross. If you struggle with that, you can come up. I'll pray for you. No, I'm kidding. Put your hand up. No, okay. <laughs> okay, we're, we're going to stop there. The point is simply that, no, we're not going to stop the message. We're not going to stop the message. The idea, we're going to stop the joke. We don't want to, we don't want to keep it, we want to keep it sanctified. The point is simply this. Self-love is self-delusion. Self-love is narcissism. In, in, the, uh, in, in the Greek mythic, uh, uh, you know, stories, they would, uh, they told a story about narcissus and he fell in love with his image and he became a flower or something. But the point is simply that was his curse but the, the point is that he, 
uh, our society is, is encouraging self-love, which is a, a form of narcissism, and telling us to fall in love with ourselves. Look, the only, the, the person that we should be falling in love with is God. The true person that the church is called to love and to adore is Jesus Christ. Our romance in the Christian life is with Christ. That's why in this book, in the book of Revelation in chapter 19, it says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Bright and pure. Fall in love with Jesus. He will make you the best version of you that you could think of. Why? Because he created you. And he loves you. And he's, and he's got a plan to purify you into his bride Bright, with clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. I've, you know, I, I, there, there are, Leonard Ravenhill once said, I've seen dirty brides, I've seen tall brides. Or sorry, he's sorry, no, no, no. He goes, I've seen tall brides and short brides and skinny brides and fat brides, but I've never seen a dirty bride. There's a purity in, in the bridal garment. And God's wanting us not to find our identity in self-expression, you see. This is what the world says. Self-expression, I'm just being me. I'm black. I'm a woman. I'm a black woman. The world is trying to get you to find your identity in your race, in gender, whatever that means to the world, in class, think of all the ways. And that's just what the woman at the well was doing. She knew her politics. She didn't know her theology. But God says the same answer to us, that we have to worship in spirit and in truth. This worship in the heavenly realm is not it's the identity of the worshipers in this worship service in the heavenly realm is found in Christ. Their identity. He's redeemed us. We have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And therefore, out of our identity in Christ, which actually unifies us regardless of those other accidental identities, you see, it brings us together and causes us to recenter ourselves in Christ with true worship being given to Christ alone. One last scripture verse, Philippians chapter 2, 3 to 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit or vanity, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not, or look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which 
is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. You see, the world is saying, fill yourself, fill yourself, fill yourself, self-love, self-love, buy more books, make more, make more self-love gurus rich. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, just like in this picture that we're seeing in Revelation chapter five, every knee is bowing and every creature on earth, the four living creatures, the elders, they're all worshiping the lamb and they're confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to today's podcast. Acts 20.27 says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And that's something that we're trying to do at King's Church. We're trying to steward God's word and share it to a generation. If you want to partner in us sharing the whole counsel of God's truth, please text KCNYC to 77977 and partner with us here at King's Church to get God's message, his whole counsel, all over the place on podcasts and on radio and around the world so believers like you would be encouraged. Thanks.